Amen. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, uh, really quick before we read our scripture text for today, just wanted to recommend a resource and solicit some prayer. Um, out on the book table, you will find a book entitled What's Your Worldview by James Anderson. Uh, it's a wonderful resource on apologetics by uh, a wonderful uh, scholar, teaches at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. He's a PhD from uh, University of Edinburgh, so you know he's smart. Uh, but the book is actually quite basic. It's just a little book, uh, but it's really good because it's interactive and it kind of guides you through like a Q&A sort of uh, situation where you interact with the, the book, kind of determines your worldview, and it helps you to understand how to deal with worldviews that are out there. And uh, I like it because uh, James Anderson is, in fact, um, he is a, a, a Van Til scholar, so he is a presuppositional apologist, and uh, very good. And then I also want to solicit prayer because last night, Living Waters, you guys, some of you guys know uh, the, um, the ministry, Living Waters, Ray Comfort and uh, Mark Spence and such. But anyway, I'm scheduled to go there this month and engage in a debate, dialogue, uh, on the issue of apologetics. Well, uh, last night they contacted me and said that they want to do in March a roundtable on apologetics with uh, Dr. Lane Tipton. You guys know who he is, maybe. Taught at Westminster for 15 years. But anyway, uh, they want to do a, um, a, a theological or a, a roundtable on apologetics. And now they're talking about bringing in uh, other guys from the other side of apologetics. And so, so far, the list of guys that are potential and probable so far is uh, William Lane Craig, uh, Greg Kokel, and Sean McDowell uh, to come in and to share uh, evidential type apologetics versus, but it's not supposed to be a debate, it's more kind of like a friendly dialogue, and uh, uh, all those guys I respect, I mean, I, I've learned a lot from uh, William Lane Craig, I think he has excellent stuff on the resurrection, for example, he does amazing research on the resurrection, um, Sean McDowell I'm not too familiar with, I learned a lot from his daddy, <laughs> from Joshua McDowell, but, uh, or, uh, yeah, Josh McDowell, the evidence that demands a verdict, I think we, a lot of us know that, and then Greg Kokel, Stand to Reason, uh, has done some really good stuff on relativism and worldviews and stuff like that, but we do have some opposing issues dealing with uh, uh, apologetics, and so I'm just thrilled uh, to even be in the conversation, I think I'm supposed to represent, like, the practical pastoral you know, I, I'm going to be the guy that does the evangelism, and so I, I bring a little different perspective. So uh, anyway, that's something that is actually quite probable here in the future. So I'm really excited about that, quite humbled by that, actually. Uh, and Living Waters is saying that this would be the biggest thing they've ever done. So they're, they're really, really excited. Be, please be praying for me, uh, especially this uh, coming uh, uh, a couple weeks here as I go out to California. 23rd, 24th is when we film uh, just pray that God would give me the right uh, demeanor, uh, the right attitude, the right perspective on this. Uh, um, the, the guy I'm debating, uh, Mike Winger, uh, I really have a heart for him. I do love him as a brother. I, I want this to be constructive. I want this to be edifying. I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't at all want to come there with, uh, you know, any sort of agenda to, you know, uh, not even in the sense of win a debate or get, you know, gotcha you know, answers or something, you know, those kind of things. I'm not interested in that. 
uh, we had a conversation on the phone, Mike Winger and I, and uh, he started getting kind of scared when I started talking about the Greek New Testament. <laughs> and he said, you're going to win on points because you know Greek and I don't. And I said, that's not what it's about, man. It's about just uh, trying to have an understanding of what is the biblical. Uh, uh, it, it's kind of funny because I told him, What we're trying to do here is discover what's the biblical uh, teaching on apologetics. But if you say biblical apologetics, in my opinion, from a presuppositional perspective, you have already conceded the debate. Uh, Because if your apologetics comes from the Bible, then it doesn't come from an independent uh, source outside the Bible. So anyway, now I'm debating you guys, you know, (laughs) trying to convince you guys. But anyway, that's what's going on. Uh, with apologetics. And so I got some resources out there, but this one, I'm really liking this a lot because it's so, it's so, uh, it's kind of like a little stick of dynamite. It's small, but it's powerful. So make sure if you want something like this, uh, What's Your Worldview by James Anderson. Go out and grab that, okay? Uh, How do we switch gears from that uh, to this? Uh, This, this has been Uh, an amazing time for me this week of study, and I hope that you will be blessed and enriched. Why don't we take our Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah, and let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. Today, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 6 and 7, and we will be, just fair warning, we will be in verses 6 and 7 for some time. Uh, I've kind of, uh, I've kind of, you know, came to the place where I, I don't think I can do this in one sermon. I don't think I can do this in two sermons. And so uh, I'm, I've decided to just uh, uh, let, uh, let this scripture really resonate with us and spend some time here. But uh, uh, let's read verses 6 and 7. This is what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you, Lord, again for this Lord's Day. Rich, wonderful. So far we have heard such incredible and marvelous truths from your word. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, celebrating his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Lord, we want to continue in that same vein of worship now just to exalt and to glorify, Lord, and to glory and to celebrate the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray that he would shine forth here today. Be in our midst, O God. Fill us with your spirit to abundance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, you may be seated. As I said, this passage of Scripture is so amazing that I was so captivated by the titles of Christ. Uh, I've never preached this text before. I've always referenced it. I've always referred to the Wonderful Counselor, to the Mighty God, to the Eternal Everlasting Father, to the Prince of Peace, 
but I've never exegetically gone through this passage of Scripture, so it was, it's been quite a treat for me. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to handle one title for today. And so each sermon will be comprised of those monumental titles that are given to the Lord Jesus in this messianic text. Today, we will look at Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, and consider what all of that means. But in reality, what we're looking at here is nothing less than the glorious character of the king. If you think about it, this whole passage of Scripture moves in in intensification, an intensifying ascension to the enthroned, glorious coronation of the King of Kings. That's where this whole passage is going. Because the whole book of Isaiah is written about the king. Matter of fact, you can find commentaries where the commentary is entitled something like The Beauty of the King, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, because you have all these statements all throughout the book of Isaiah of God declaring that he will be the king, that the Lord will be their king, that they will see the beauty of the king, you know, on and on and on it goes. But this glorious character of the king begins with the condescension of the king, if you didn't notice that. Look at verse 6 again. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And so, this incredible, supernal, heavenly, supernatural vision of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, begins with yeled, the Hebrew word for little child. The king of glory will first condescend and become a child. And this child is none other than the prophesied child going all the way back, if you would, to chapter 7, where there Ahaz, who refuses to ask for a sign, is nevertheless given a sign by God himself, which is described as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. In other words, this sign is of a transcendental nature. This sign is of a profound nature. This sign is of an otherworldly nature. In this sign, we are touching on something divine. And what he's touching on, of course, is that there will be a time when a virgin will be with child. And you will call his name Emmanuel. He is the one who will come down. And notice the amazing wording here back in chapter 9. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. And so where, but here, the New Testament authors remind us that God so loved the world that He gave us His Son. And at the same time, the Son reminds us in John chapter 10 that His coming, verse 18, was voluntary so that He lays down His life willingly for the sheep. As Jesus says there, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and if I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. So that so far, the coming, the condescension, 
the inbreaking of this child is a binatarian affair, meaning father, son, and then at the same time, and not far from that, a verse that we will look at today, Isaiah 42, verse 1, we also see that the phenomenon of Emmanuel is also going to rest upon the work of the Spirit. The Spirit who will endow the Son, who will empower the Son, who will fill Him with wisdom and knowledge so that at the end of the day, the vision that emerges from the book of Isaiah is a Trinitarian affair where Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the work of Emmanuel. God, wow, kind of gives a new meaning to what it means, that God with us. It is the triune God who comes to dwell amidst His people. It is this divine condescension, therefore, that leads to the consequent glories, just to borrow a word from Peter, of what we hear next in the text, namely, that he who is coming is not just a child, but he is also wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I know that among the titles there given we are New Testament Christians. We're New Covenant Christians. We are Trinitarian Christians. And so probably already in your mind you're thinking, how is it that Jesus can be called eternal Father? And you know, here's a church growth method here. Uh, come back, you know, next uh, <laughs> subsequent weeks. <laughs> we're going to handle that because uh, I can't do it here today. But it just leads to the intrigue, to the mystery of this. What is a... What is a, a, a was Isaiah a modalist or something? I mean, did the Father come in this child? We have to answer those kinds of questions. But today, I want to set our gaze upon the first title, which is this. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. And I thought to myself, as I sat there amidst buried in books and buried in commentaries, and as I looked at the title Wonderful Counselor, I searched in vain among the commentaries for a serious, meaningful exposition of the title, Wonderful Counselor. You know what I got, guys? I got three sentences from this commentary. I got a blip over here and a blip over there. I got maybe a paragraph over here. But nobody wanted to do a deep dive into Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? And so I thought, I had to do it myself, I suppose. I even went to Ray Ortland's a commentary, who is a collection of sermons. You know what I got? Blip. Little tiny three-sentence phrase talking about how Jesus is going to be wise. That's it. I'm thinking, where is the tome on this? Okay, let's go into this here. The theme of divine counsel is something that is connected to Yahweh Himself, to the Messiah. For example, the same Hebrew word there for wonderful is used of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made His counsel wonderful. It's almost like a reversing of the phrase. It's the same exact Hebrew uh, uh, wording, just in reverse. And His wisdom, great. What is remarkable about this, actually, is that the same words that are used to characterize uh, the Messiah here are used to characterize Yahweh. 
And that this counsel, this wisdom, this knowledge is something that is endowed upon him by the Spirit. And so, look quickly over to Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And again, verse 1 says, it is the root of Jesse. It is the Messiah that we're talking about. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What's the deal with the counsel? The deal with the council is that in order for him to govern his kingdom, he must be endowed with supernatural counsel, supernatural wisdom. What was typological in Solomon, the wonderful counselor that he was, now reaches its climactic fulfillment in the truly wonderful counselor who is Christ he is king and counselor of his people, which I just think is an absolutely remarkable, uh, remarkable thing. Uh, let me point out quickly here that the word wonderful is more of an adjective in our, uh, in our uh, grammar, but in the Hebrew it is a noun. What does that mean? What that means, and the commentaries point this out, what Isaiah actually wrote if you want to be wooden, if you want to be literal, is he literally wrote, his name will be Wonder Counselor. That's what he wrote. And so <laughs> Alec Mater and others, John Oswald, they point this out, that in fact what Isaiah is saying is first that this individual will be himself a wonder. He will be a marvel and he will be a counselor, which is remarkable. Now let us remember here in the context of Isaiah where all of this comes in. Look back at verse 2, remember? This comes after uh, we left chapter 8 in the context there. The people of Israel have sinned so grievously. I remind you here. They have sinned so grievously they have gone into the occult. They've gone into divination, soothsayers, mediums, witches warlocks, whatever you want to call them, mediums who consult spirits. And so that Isaiah goes on to say, look, if they don't speak according to the testimony of God, they have no dawn, they have no future. Therefore, the land is full of darkness and gloom and anguish. This is how the context is left. And then we are told of the Messiah that he will come and the people who walk in darkness, verse 2, they will see a great light. Matter of fact, uh, those who live in the dark land, literally, you can translate that shadow of death is the way the Hebrew literally can be rendered. The light will shine on them. And so this wisdom counselor, wonderful counselor motif is a direct answer to the question of the darkness. This comes in as the antithesis of the spiritual darkness that people are presently experiencing. In a word, it is the dawning of light that is coming. That is what the wonderful counselor is all about. Mankind will be taken out of darkness into God's marvelous lights, and the origins of all of man's enlightenment are tethered to the coming of Messiah. Now, word to the wise, we will be in the Gospel of John, so flick over there real quick because we're going to be like shotgun all over the Gospel of John today. 
One of the reasons why is because the Gospel of John uniquely operates upon the motif, the theme, in other words, of light and darkness. And so it makes sense that we go to John for all of this because he is steeped in this. As a matter of fact, the prologue, the beginning of the Gospel of John, begins with this kind of, you know, right out of the gates, boom, this light and darkness motif begins. Look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, that Greek word there for comprehend can be rendered either comprehend or overcome. On the one, the author would be thus accenting the power of Jesus. On the other, he would be accenting the the. Uh, the, the, the message of Jesus, in other words, the preaching of Jesus, uh, who, who, who he is in truth, right? And so I, I, I've gone between these, and sometimes when you go between, you just kind of say, well, both, because, you know, everyone is so undecided here. But taken, taken as comprehension for today, right, there is a significant case for that found in verse 10. It seems as if it forms a bookend to verse 10 that says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. There you go. So there is the epistemic connection to the comprehension of the light, if in fact that is what John wanted us to get, which I think is perfectly fine. In other words, though, what this is saying is that all truth, all light, all enlightenment comes through him. He comes into the world, and his light is the light of life. His light is the light of truth. As Calvin put it, we must recognize that what is being described here is the special salvific privileges and blessings being given to God's people, those upon whom the light of Christ will dawn, shining forth the truth of His glory and the marvel of His grace. How, therefore, may we understand the privilege of who He is as wonderful counselor? I want to approach this idea in three, at least, there's at least three things here I, wanna, I want to point out, and they all are messianically uh, uh, sort of um, engineered, if you would. They're all connected to the context of Messiah because that's the context of Isaiah, and they have to do with the light of truth, the light of salvation, and the light of the kingdom. First, the light of truth. I think we should point out something that deals with ontology, God, in other words, and His counsel are the same, meaning that so, so long as it pertains to the mind of God, His thoughts, His mind is His being. They are inseparable. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Um, this, is so, uh, this is so ironic on one level because it's amazing to me, and this has happened to me my whole life, uh, as long as I've been preaching and teaching that what I'm studying over here seemingly unrelated to what I'm studying over here seemingly unrelated, God has a way of telling me all the time, no, 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 my friend, they are related. <laughs> so what I'm doing in apologetics ironically has to do with what I'm doing in theology over here because really what it boils down to is an understanding that all truth comes from God, all truth is derived from God, and our thoughts about God's thoughts are analogically so. I know I just lost probably all of you, but what I'm saying is that the reason that 
the reason that the theologian Cornelius Van Til, I believe, was correct when he said that our thoughts are analogical of God, but they are not univocal with God. In other words, we do not think the thoughts of God as he thinks them. Because the way that God thinks something is, is cohering within his own being. And unless we partake of the being of God, we do not think or feel or experience anything as God experiences. In other words, we follow God in his thinking only analogically. We think, as he th we, we think in conjunction to his thinking, but we do not think his actual thoughts. It's a little bit deep, but for the record, I've got to get that out there only to understand this idea that Paul develops. Look at Romans chapter 11. God's thoughts are as deep as God. Oh, the depth, verse 33, of the riches both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments, unfathomable His ways. And in fact, that word there, unsearchable, literally is a word picture in the Greek that means that you cannot trace steps. And so what it literally means is that sooner you would run out of counting God's steps. Let's say you saw the steps of God on a beach somewhere. Sooner you would run out of numbers than to be able to number all the steps of God. They are so infinite. They are so vast. They are so incomparable. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, here's my apologetic, by the way, from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And so this is why only the Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, only the Spirit can fully think in line with God, can fully search out Every meticulous thought that God has, only the Spirit can do it, <laughs> which is kind of like, what, <laughs> right? But what kind of Christianity doesn't blow your mind? If your mind is blown, well, so is mine, okay? So, you know, welcome to the club. The Spirit alone can search out the thoughts of God in a similar way as saying only your mind can search out your thoughts. The Spirit that is of God can search out the thoughts that are in God. All truth that God chooses to reveal originates with Him and with His infinite wisdom. As the wonderful counselor, therefore, Jesus informs us from the bottomless depths of His infinite, omniscient, and exhaustive wisdom. Look with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. As the wisdom of God himself, he can inform us about wisdom because he has all wisdom. Paul teaches this very thing in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. And their hearts may, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Okay, so Paul is praying for the saints. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Verse 3 is crucial. In whom? Jesus, the antecedent. In him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <laughs> wow. Who is this 
child that is going to be born among us, right? It is the one in whom all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. From the revelatory perspective, therefore, Jesus is the sum total of all of God's wisdom that has ever been revealed in Scripture. They all are wrapped up in Him. The Torah, the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the writings, the prophets. Scripture as an exposition of the mind of God breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, is now found in the, in the revelatory epicenter of Jesus Christ. He is the dispenser of God's light, God's wisdom, God's counsel, God's truth, so much so that this is an incarnation of the wisdom of God, so much so that he can say, not that I know the truth, I show you the truth, I reveal the truth, but he says, I am the truth. He is the truth. He is wisdom. Let me read to you some verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, ready? Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Wow. Verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1, 30. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. In his light, in other words, we see light. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told that by virtue of our union with him, we may be privy to the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. If you are not in union with Christ, if you don't have a life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are not joined to Jesus Christ because of his death, his burial, his resurrection. If you are not bound to Christ by faith, you are not in the sphere of wisdom and knowledge and revelation. And this is why Paul says repeatedly, the Gentiles who do not know, they are epistemically in darkness because light is found in him. I would venture to say that outside of Jesus Christ, there is not a single article of truth that anybody knows for good reason. You know, a lot of times we say, well, the Bible is true insofar as what the Bible covers. And so, like, the Bible is not a cookbook or the Bible is not a manual on mechanics or it's not a book on algebra or something like that. But as Van Til says, the Bible is true to whatever it speaks and the Bible speaks to everything either implicitly or explicitly. The Bible touches on everything. And therefore, apart from the Bible, apart from Christianity, I would say you do not know one single thing properly. Not without God, but that's another lesson. <laughs> so as we think of Messiah as our counselor, he is not just the messianic counselor of truth. He is to get more appropriate to the theology of what uh, Isaiah is trying to teach here. He is the counselor. We could say he is the messianic counselor of salvation. He comes to reveal as the wonderful counselor. It's not just that Jesus is a wonder, but that his counsel is wonderful too. When Jesus arrived on the scene, 
immediately his counsel went forth. Even before he could speak, his counsel was sounding forth. Remember? It came out of those around him. They declared his counsel. They declared his praises. It began to be known by those who heralded his person, his work, his message. From the angels to his mother to the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. I remember being years ago in Bethlehem. Not this last time that we went, but sometime before that. I remember going out. We were actually out on the fields of Bethlehem there where the shepherds would have seen the epiphany of the angels as they appeared there and intruded into the present age and let their light shine down on that field at Bethlehem. And what's remarkable about that field of Bethlehem is that it is littered with giant white stones. It's like green pastures and white stones everywhere there in Bethlehem. And I could just, I was just sitting there just imagining, wow, can you imagine being one of those shepherds out there and suddenly the angels of God dawn a light begins to shine all around. All those white stones begin to illuminate around you and out comes the declaration that good news, glad tidings of good things. Just remarkable. Whether it was Anna the prophetess, John the Baptist, even the Gentiles. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The Magi from the distant east coming to declare the wonder of this counselor. In his first public sermon, if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 22, or I could just read it to you. In his first public sermon, when he began to speak, he spoke as someone that no one had, like no one had ever spoken before, such that it says people were literally wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. Notice what Luke is saying there, his words that were falling from his lips is almost poetic in saying, dripping from this man's lips were words that were so wondrous, so gracious, everyone stood or sat in awe of him. The wonderful counselor speaks, and his counsel is light. Turn with me to John chapter 8 illuminating the way of salvation, the way of repentance, the way of the kingdom. And Jesus' self-disclosure was that he was the light of the world. He did not merely bear witness to the light. He was and is the light, the light of God, the light of truth, the light of salvation, which also carries with it a very serious moral injunction, not only for the world, but also for the church John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Here's the injunction. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You hear what that's saying there? If you don't walk with him, if you don't believe in him, you're not experiencing life. You may think you're alive, but you are not. You're a dead man. You're a dead woman walking. You think you have life. You don't. Because life, true life, abundant life, eternal life comes from Him. He says the same thing if you go to John chapter 9. Turn to John chapter 9 and verse 5. Listen to this. It tends to throw people off a little bit. While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. I mean, throws people off a little bit because people are saying, well, what do you mean by while? 
D.A. Carson answered that and said, no, no, no. Obviously, he does not mean that once he ascended out of the world, he's no longer the light of the world. But he was trying to emphasize something that in his presence, in his face, in his prosopon was the light that gives light to every man redemptively, salvifically, and it was a call to take advantage of the light when you see the light. Don't let the light pass you by. It's almost as if here John is echoing what Paul says elsewhere, namely 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You remember? He says, beginning in verse 6, Yet we speak wisdom among those that are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Keep reading. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory or to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. They did not comprehend the light. Because while he was in the world, he was the light. And yet many people turned their back on the light, as we'll see. For they ha had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isaiah is not at all ignorant of the gravity of Jesus' illuminating mission, but foretold of it of his redemptive glory, this wonderful counselor. Turn to Isaiah chapter 42, please. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. A quick exposition of this just to see, but it is this wonderful counselor who will usher in the light of a new day, a day of visitation, to illuminate the way to the blind and light for those that are shackled in the dungeon of their sins. As he releases them from the bondage of their sin, he also then will bind them fast to his own righteousness by becoming a covenant for them. Wow. With the arrival of this messianic counselor would come the new covenant with all of its redemptive glory and promising a new creation. That's what it's all about. Notice the structure of Isaiah 42. Ready? It begins first with the spirit endowment of the Messiah for the mission um, to the Gentiles. Verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. It's kind of interesting because you're wondering, what? Didn't Jesus preach? Or I think that what, what that is saying there is that much of Jesus' ministry, if you remember, oftentimes throughout the ministry of Jesus, what would Jesus tell people after he performed the miracle, after he disclosed a certain profound heavenly truth to them, eternal truth to them? Tell no one nothing. Right? It's, so it's like everything is happening according to plan. And so what do the atheists want from you? What do the skeptics want from you? What does the agnostic want from you? Where is Jesus just going around? Where is the Muslim 
oh, man, I was at Starbucks today, and there's three Muslims next to me, and they were having the most passionate conversation. I thought they were going to go up in flames. But anyway, I wanted to be part of that so bad. I was, like, doing everything. I was like, if my wife was here, she'd be, like, in there already. But anyway, I was just like, man, I want to go in there. But Muslims, what do they want? Where is Jesus going around the street saying, I am God, I am God, I am God? Yeah, Jesus didn't do that. You know why? Because he did everything according to the Father's will. He did everything in accordance with the hour that God had determined for him. He did everything in submission to the eternal decree and covenant of God. Jesus never stepped out of line, not even once. A bruised reed, he will not break. Dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring justice He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for him. Only read this to say, look, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, there Simeon is waiting for what he calls the consolation of Israel. There it is, the bruised reed, the the dimly burning wick. He will not extinguish. He will not let his people who are weary. I'll show you an expression of this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, I believe it is. This hit me. You know, there's a lot of work to be done with Mary, mother of Jesus. Yeah, I know we always talk about her in relationship to Catholics and how heretical they are. I'm saying there is a profound theology connected to Mary. I've said this before, I say it again, Mary was a deep theologian. She was, what an example to women. She knew the scriptures. And when she meditated and reflected, as I said, she treasured in her heart all that was happening. She wrapped her whole Old Testament theology around this child. She swaddled him in theology, in Old Testament revelation. And I just think, imagine being Mary, lowly, poor, you know, humble, little lady. And she has seen so much oppression. She has seen so much darkness. She lives in a world full of brutality. She sees the Romans and what they've done. She sees the aristocrats in Israel, what they do in Jerusalem. She sees the scribes and the Pharisees, the injustices. She sees the corruption She sees the den of thieves at the temple. She sees all of that. And then upon this supernatural intrusion, this heavenly vision, wherein it is revealed to her what would happen to her, she, I would say, exclaims with the deepest sigh you could probably fathom and says in verse 50 of Luke chapter 1, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. What she's saying is 400 years since Malachi, God has not forgotten his people. Praise God. It was like, it's here. It has arrived. Salvation has come. And there's been a deafening silence for so long 
And finally, at last, the wonderful counselor has arrived and I am to be called blessed among all women because I get, get to give birth. Wow! I'm just saying, Mary, when I get to heaven, Mary will be one of the first people that I talk to. So don't talk to me until I'm done talking to her, okay? Because <laughs> I want to have a deep conversation with her. Oh, boy. He next, and if you go back to Isaiah 42, um, I hope you get, I hope you literally um, sit in the pew of Heritage Grace, be like, oh, okay, back forward, Isaiah 42, oh, okay, back over here. That's good. That's, uh, that's called Bible sweat. You need a little of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we, need, we need some of that. But anyway, if you go back to Isaiah 42 and verse 5, then what happens next in the structure of the text is that here God, the sovereign authority, creator, Lord, he ordains everything. And then it comes right in the middle of this passage here. Why? To emphasize something, folks, that he is sovereign, which means what? That means that the unfolding of redemptive history is at his command. He commands it all. That's the point. Thus says the Lord God, who created heaven and earth and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all its offspring and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit for those who walk in it. See, he is the creator. Whenever the Bible speaks like this, it's trying to emphasize that God upholds you. He's the one giving breath to the king of Assyria, to the king of Babylon, He's the one giving breath and life. He's the one vivifying the very enemies that Israel dreads. He's sovereign over them. Had he not given them a spirit, they would not be over here walking around and causing trouble in the first place. So look to the sovereign in all of this. And then the next section of the text is the covenant servanthood of Jesus who will usher in a new creation. And I'll just read it. He says, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, I will also uphold you by my hand and watch over you, I will appoint you, that's the Spirit-endowed Messiah from verse 1, I will appoint you a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. See why, see why I went to this text? I went to this text because there's a perfect contextual link back to Isaiah chapter 9. The light to the nations is going to be the spirit-endowed covenant counselor to the people of God. He's coming, and when he comes, he'll be a light to the nations. Look verse 7. To open the, the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners out of the dungeon. Oh, many of our hymns are based on this on a text like this, and those who dwell in darkness from prison, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. In other words, he's saying, it must be done this way. I must send my servant, and I must endow him with my spirit, so that at the end of the day, I alone am glorified. My name only is exalted. That's what's at stake. It's always the glory of God. God does everything for his own glory. Uh, Nor my praise to graven images. Behold the former things. Oh, verse 9. Behold the former things have come to pass. Have come to pass. Now I declare new things. The former things have come to pass. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. And the proclamation of new things 
He will declare new things. He will usher in a new covenant. He will make a new creation in His Son, Jesus Christ. But in this salvation, in the fact that this messianic counselor is at the same time showing us this great salvation, the counselor of salvation, he shows us these things quickly. He shows us the need for salvation. He shows us the ground of salvation. He shows us the way of salvation. He shows us the nature of salvation. And he shows us the crisis of salvation. Follow quickly, quickly with me. I don't want you to to get lost here because this is very important. What's the need of salvation? The need of salvation is the present darkness that we see in Isaiah chapter 8 and chapter 9. That becomes a catalyst for the spiritual darkness of man counteracted only by the light that comes through Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a familiar passage, verses 4 to 6. I could just read it for you, but it's a familiar text, but it kind of sort of captures the whole enchilada here. In whose case the unbeliever, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, those who reject the gospel, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Brothers and sisters, the whole entire Bible, the whole entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the gospel of the glory of Christ. That is the light that is shining from Genesis to Revelation. It's just this slow and intensifying and progressive unfolding and effulgence of that light until finally at last, you know, I kind of like, like I envision like the, the light speed, you know, Star Wars or whatever, you know, like boom, it's in his face, it's in his presence, it's in him. Look no further, he doesn't become a stepping stone to anything else. We reach the end of it. It's like the climax is here. There's nothing higher. He is it. He is, what did he say? The image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. And ourselves, we are your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Christ, but he also gives us the ground of this salvation. Turn with me to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, because he also gives us the fact that yes, the people are to be redeemed, the light is to shine, the counselor is to come, but it will all come at a very great price. It will come at a, it will be a a, a costly and precious Payment. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 12, beginning of verse 20. You ready? Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going to the worship to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This happens to me all the time, by the way, at UNT. I have little pagan kids that come up to me after I'm done preaching who, okay, they don't, okay, they don't use the, this word, but <laughs> not a, they hardly ever say it like this. But when they come up to me 
and they're glossed over in disbelief of what they just heard. They don't know whether to love me or hate me yet. <laughs> they don't know whether to give me a hug or stone me, right? <laughs> they're looking, and they're kind of glossed over, and they're like, yeah, but can you, can you kind of answer this question that I have? That, but, but what about this? What they're in essence saying is, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Can we learn more? Can we see more? Can we understand more of who he is and what he did? That's the way I take it. They want to see Jesus. And so Andrew, Philip, they came and then they told Jesus. And Jesus answered and he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? Remember, we're talking about the price that needed to be paid in order for redemption, the salvation to be accomplished. And Jesus is here talking about the Son of Man needing to be glorified. Was How does glorified sound like a payment? Because in the Gospel of John, to be glorified is code for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says glorified, he means die. How do we know that? For certain, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, you could just substitute that. But if I die, it bears or I bear much fruit. And in keeping with this exact motif, look at verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That is the devil. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, lifted up where? You know, people sing praise worship songs. Lift him up, lift him up. Well, according to John, to be lifted up means crucify him. So we might want to alter our lyrics a little bit. But you know what I mean. Lift him up in praise. Okay, got it. But here, lift him. Lifted up from the earth means crucified, and it is where he will draw all men to myself. Verse 33 makes it plain. But he was saying this, notice the inspired writer, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. That is the cost of salvation he also shows us the way of salvation. Look at John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, Mary, in the death of her brother Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. People uh, joke around and they toy around with death and life, and they don't take it very serious, but it's serious. Uh, a friend of mine called me yesterday to talk about the fact that his mom died, and it was expected she was already dying, but I picked his brain a little bit, and I said, how do you feel, man? How do you really feel right now, you know? And, uh, well, he began to just uh, tell me how much hope he had. She was a Christian. She was a believer. But, oh, the reality of death. And it is in the very context of that gut-wrenching gut existential experience that we all will have, either by knowing someone who dies or by dying ourselves. And in that very, at the very pinnacle of that human experience, all-defining, permanent experience, Jesus says, in that very moment, I am the resurrection and the life. 
If you believe in me, you will live even if you die. And I just think that Jesus was the most profound. Person. You can usually tell your tears no. John chapter 17, Jesus doesn't just show us the way of salvation. He shows us the nature of salvation as well because the nature of salvation consists not of religion by itself. It's not a spiritual experience only, but it is a real-life encounter, a personal encounter with a living God And so Jesus says in John 17, 3, the passage you all know probably, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the quality of life that the divine counsel of the wonderful counselor came to reveal to us. Here is where life is genuinely found. Last of all, at least on this, he also shows us the crisis of, of salvation. Turn with me to John chapter 12, back to 12, and look at verse 44. So complex. I sat there, almost pulled the plug on this passage, because if I read this, <laughs> then I would never get out of this. But if you look at John 12, beginning in 44 to 50, I challenge you, I challenge you. Many of you are theologically minded, and you're very astute, and you're studious and stuff like that. I wrote down here on, my, on the margin of my notes, I wrote down so complex, so profound, so much more work to be done here in this text. Let's read it together, because it presents the crisis of salvation that the counselor revealed. Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. What? For I did not come into the world to judge the world, or I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Usually people want to stop there. No. Verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. This is what I'm talking about. This is so incredibly complex. What is Jesus talking about here? The word, the one who sent me, I only speak what I see, what I hear, what he commands. What? That's the way the Lord said it. Deal with it. Your soul is on the line here. Your eternity is at stake because of complex statements like this by Jesus. I know that his commandment is eternal life, as if it couldn't get any weightier. Try to unravel that. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told.
told me. And what the Father told him was rooted in the very thing that we began with, which was the king and his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it is all about the kingdom. And so the messianic counselor reveals truth, reveals salvation, and reveals the kingdom. That's what Isaiah 6 is all about. This is the ultimate light that dawns in Jesus Christ, the counsel of the kingdom, the exposition of the kingdom. We can say, almost to finish, so if your stomach's growling as much as mine, just hang in there. Hunger is the best sauce anyway. Jesus situated all that came before him in terms of messianic theology, eschatology, prophecy, signs, wonders, promises, and covenants in the context of the kingdom of God. Not only was Isaiah's entire prophecy here of Christ a prophecy of kingship, it is thus an eschatological prophecy paving the way of the kingdom of God that dawns in Christ. With the arrival of the king came the arrival of the kingdom. Here is precisely, brothers and sisters, where many things can go astray. People often fail here and err here, and therefore they err with respect to the nature of the kingdom, the nature of eschatology, and the nature of Jesus' person and work. Just as his initial coming was not in the final eschatological fullness of new creation, so too his kingdom comes in power, but not in the fullness of power. That awaits a future installment of the kingdom at the final installment at the coming of Christ, the parousia. So, Jesus can both speak of the presence of the kingdom Remember uh, uh, Matthew chapter 12, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Whoa, and that's powerful, realized eschatology to be taken into account. But he can also speak of a future kingdom as coming. And so he says that the kingdom will come, that we ought to pray your kingdom come, that he tells his disciples, I will not partake of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And so there is an already, not yet, dynamic to the kingdom of God so that the mighty counselor reveals to us that as his kingdom comes, what comes with the kingdom is an already deposit, an installment, at his first coming, and then a final consummate installment of the kingdom of God. And when that comes, brothers and sisters, what will come with it is a new creation, a whole new world, not just the renovation of this world. It's not just cleaning this world up. It's not just making this age and this world more religious, more Christian, more Okay, less wicked. No, but when that final installment comes, it will be a whole new world. Do you see now why I only did Wonderful Counselor? What if I did the next title? You'd be doomed. Father, oh, the counsel of your son. Now, 
Never a man spoke like this. And we stand in awe of his light. The gracious words that drip from his mouth. Oh God, help us always. And no matter what happens to us, and no matter what season, we may go through the most wretched, wretched seasons of life. But help us always to come back to the wonder of wonders, to come back to him who is our joy, our glory, to come back to the wonderful counselor so that we might be instructed and so that we may increase in our joy and in our love for him. In Christ's name, amen.